Well, good morning again. Good to see you. Um, we also had this opportunity to dismiss the children and the, and the um, teachers, the children's church. They get to hear about Jesus this morning as well as they go through the Gospel Project, which is a chronological study through uh, the Bible. As, we, uh, as I mentioned earlier, as I read earlier um, in Luke chapter 5, that's where we're going to be at this morning, verses um, 12 through 16, the account that is also found in Matthew's Gospel and Mark's Gospel. So it's uh, shared among um, the, the three. Uh, synoptic Gospel is called, uh, which means that they all have, they're all similar. John is in a category all his own, but also teaches about Jesus as well. But um, this is a short passage. It's only five verses here. It's actually shorter in, in both Matthew and Mark. Luke's is the, the most lengthy at five verses, but there's still a lot to unpack in those five verses. Um, if you're joining us for the first time, we're trekking through the gospel according to Luke, um, written by a guy by the name of, as you probably guessed it, Luke. Um, he was a Greek convert to Christianity, medical doctor, ministry partner with the Apostle Paul during the early church, and he spoke with many of the eyewitnesses to put this narrative together that we're reading here this morning um, so that his readers, his, his original audience, but also us today could be assured of the accuracy of his account of his narrative there. And ultimately, though, we recognize that this is not just his words, but this is um, the word of God as he was carried along by the spirit of God. This is the divinely authored word of God given to us so that we can understand who he is. And we're about 16 sermons through our, ser- our series so far. Um, it's called Mission to the World. So if you miss any of those, those uh, sermons so far, you can go on our website and you can check those out. We encourage you to do that. This morning's passage though opens, as we see, with Jesus in an unnamed city. As he's in a city, it says. And we don't know for sure where that is, but we do know what he was doing in the city. Um, if we look at the context of this passage, where it fits within uh, this account so far, we know that as he's, Jesus is traveling as an itinerant preacher, he's going from uh, city to city, town to town, even in the outskirts of cities. Um, he's likely in the region of Galilee, but what he's doing here is he is continuing his public ministry by preaching the good news of the kingdom of God to, uh, to, to, the, to the world. He's a dynamic teacher as he's preaching, it says, and not because first and foremost he's an eloquent speaker, eloquent communicator. Um, that seems to be what we use as a litmus test today for significance, presentations, everything, um, rather than content. But Jesus' audience is captivated because of what he's preaching about. They're captivated by the content of his message, which is the truth, God's truth. And they recognize that it's, he's teaching scripture with a level of authority that is unlike anything else that they have heard from any other teacher or religious leader of his day. And as John says in his prologue, of his gospel, he counts, he says, the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And that's what Luke uh, is echoing here uh, in his passage here. He's echoing that reality for us this morning as he says in, in verse, if you just turn to uh, four, chapter four, verse four, 14 through 15, it says, and Jesus returned in, in the power of the spirit to Galilee and, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country and he taught in their synagogues being glorified by all. Then he moved along and went on to his own uh, hometown synagogue of, of Nazareth. And he, as he's reading Isaiah's prophecy, he asserts that he's the anointed one that's being proclaimed in this passage, in this prophecy, that he's the Messiah, the chosen one, the anointed one of God. 
And it says here, and they all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming out of his mouth. They were astonished because they knew that he was just a carpenter's son, but he was, he's proclaiming this truth with such authority and, um, as he was preaching. And ironically, they were offended by it. Initially, they were excited by it, but then they were offended by it, and they tried to toss him off the cliff to do away with him, but he providentially escaped from them. And then he goes on to Capernaum, which is a, a, a city of Galilee, and, and Luke writes that Jesus was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. So his authority here is unparalleled, right? It's unmatched by any of the contemporary leaders of his day because he preached with God's authority, with divine authority. Jesus, as we're taught in Scripture, was the agent of creation, right? He was the one who brought all things about by the word of his power. And the one that, the, that John the Apostle called the Logos, that's who Jesus is. He's the, the, the word of God. He spoke the world into existence and now he was taking residence in human flesh, complete with vocal cords like we have. And he used those vocal cords, he used his voice, his breath, to proclaim the good news that Israel had waited for centuries to hear and to see come to pass. Messiah was here. Salvation was here and it was imminent. And the powerful life-changing truths that he's preaching were also accompanied, we hear, from Luke by powerful, life-changing miracles. And these further validated the credibility of his claims, his claims for who he was, his identity, his authority, and his message. Crowds were, were lining up to hear him and to also be healed from, his, from their diseases and, and to be released from demon possession. He did all those things. And last week we learned that Jesus' authority also extended into nature, the natural realm as well. And, and why not, right? This is his domain after all, right? After a group of fishermen fail in their attempts to catch fish the, the previous night, Jesus instructs them in the daytime as they're washing their nets and preparing them for the next day, he tells them to go out again, cast your nets for a catch. Go out not to see if you catch anything, but go out for a catch. Simon Peter was the lead, and he had some reservations, but he relented, and Jesus' words proved to be true, to be accurate. That they, and, and what happens is they take on so many fish that their nets are, are, are ripping under the weight, and their boats are sinking under the weight of all these fish, all this omega-3 that's on their boats now, right? And in response, Simon Peter falls before Jesus' feet and acknowledges that he's a sinful man. He does not deserve to be in the presence of Jesus himself. And in this incredible act that Jesus had done, he demonstrated his power while also portraying for his disciples, his first disciples that he was calling, Peter, James, and John, that they were going to continue to be fishermen, but of another sort, a fisherman of people. He was calling them to follow him and then go on to bring others along that would also follow Jesus. That's the church missions today, is right? It's the same. It hasn't changed. We're commissioned by Christ who has been granted all authority in heaven and earth to go out and to make disciples. And this morning, we'll see that Jesus expresses another attribute of his character as he's unfolding a revelation of who he is and, and what his plans and purposes are. We see that along with his healing power and his powerful word, we're going to see that he has compassion 
His compassion compels him to, to heal and to preach. And we'll walk through the text in four, four parts, and then we'll end by taking communion this morning as a, as a great way to respond to what we hear. So let's first look at where our, our outline is going to be. We're going to see that first we'll see in verse 12 a man covered in leprosy. Then we'll see him being compassionately cleansed in verse 13. Him being called to community in verse 14. And then we'll see Jesus' commitment to prayer in, in the closing two verses, 15 and 16. So let's first look at this man who was covered in leprosy in verse 12. As I mentioned earlier, Jesus is, right, he's in an unnamed city. We don't know where he's at, at necessarily, but that's not important. Um, what takes center stage is what Jesus is doing there, right? While he's there, he's, approaching, he's approached by this man with leprosy, and two things are immediately striking about this when we look at, at the text. First is the extent of this man's condition. Remember, Luke's a medical doctor, Right? And he wants the reader to understand that this, suf- this man was suffering from more than just a few blisters and sores. The man, it says, was literally full of leprosy. Or as other translations um, put this, he was covered in leprosy. And leprosy was, this, was a, just a general term that was used to um, identify various types of skin, skin t- conditions, um, all of which would have left this person that was suffering from leprosy as ceremonial, ceremonial unclean. This man was, had an, obviously an advanced and aggressive case. Quite possibly he had Hansen's disease. We don't know that for sure. It's, that's what we call it nowadays. It was a disease that was a crippling bacterial infection that would wreak havoc not only on the skin but would go beyond that and attack your, your eyes and the lining of your nose, your nerves, resulting in blindness possibly and loss of sensation in, in your hands and your feet and your body. And so without the ability to, 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 to feel and to feel pain, those infected who were untreated, when they couldn't retreat them, treat them in the same way that we can today, were susceptible then to cuts, to severe burns, to, to muscle and, and ligament damage, um, and eventually to paralysis and, and obviously leading to death. And the law of God, the law of Moses, was clear. It gave a clear prescription uh, of those who had a confirmed case of leprosy. Leprosy. Leviticus 13 through 45 through 45 through 46 states that lepers were to wear torn clothing. They were to keep their hair, if you had any hair, he keep their hair loose, uncombed, and, and, and to cover your upper lip. As you, and as you traveled everywhere, you would have to, you were required to just announce that you were there by saying, unclean, unclean. And this was a, a way of preventing the spread of the disease, but also um, because anybody who came in contact with an, a ceremonial unclean person would also become unclean. The law would say he, he should also live alone. His dwelling, it says, will be outside the camp. So lepers were not to be around society. They were instructed to be separate, live separately from the community and in isolation. And you know what that meant? It meant that you had no identity you had no social identity you you had no career no way of making a living uh you you were divorced from relationship from your friends from your family and you were restricted from gathering with the community of faith to worship in the temple lepers were also stigmatized by society they were stigmatized as being as people who were 
the, those who are sinful on, on a level more than anybody else, categorically more sinful than anybody else. They, they were especially sinful and, they, they, and that this leprosy was a sign of God's judgment. They were unclean morally as well as physically. And they were not simply ignored, but they were actually ostracized. They were made to feel shameful for their condition. And the leper in this passage this morning that we're reading was a social outcast who was perpetually living in a shame. He was living in shame in the form of wearing the rags that he was wearing, in the form of announcing the shame wherever he went, unclean, unclean. And he was living and wallowing in his shame in isolation. He was, for all, all intents and purposes, he was considered dead by societal standards without any hope of ever returning to his previous life. So I want you to feel that for just a second. Being cleansed from leprosy at that day was akin to actually resurrection, bringing a dead corpse back to life again. That's the extent of leprosy and how it was viewed in the day. Now, the law itself, it, it didn't associate leprosy with sin. That came from the, the, the people in the community. What, what caused them to treat people with leprosy in this way with, dis, with disdain and, and, and to consider them subhuman was the sinful condition of their own hearts, right? It was a wickedness in their own hearts. Sin isn't necessarily something or simply something that come, is from outside that comes and can infect us and therefore we, somehow we can avoid it if we, if we live a certain way. It exists within the human heart. But before we pass judgment on those who are living in the day, right, let's, let's consider the fact that we do the same thing today, don't we, right? Are there people that, that we think uh, as being so sinful or, or have s- severely sinned to the degree that they are beyond the grace of God? Are there people that we avoid because they're not like us or because of their background or maybe because of their past, their lifestyle, their political leanings or their economic status? And what this text teaches us is there isn't a person that can't be changed without a single powerful encounter with Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. So maybe you need to hear that because you've been the recipient of that kind of treatment from other people. Forgiveness is offered to everyone who turns to Jesus Christ. And that should, I hope, family, that should help embolden us to share the gospel with people. What's also striking about this account that we read about, and that and only Luke points this out, by the way, is that the man approached Jesus within the city limits. Right? We just talked about the fact that he was supposed to be in isolation. He, was, he had breached the social barrier that was meant to protect the community from the disease and, and from defilement. And according to the law, anyone who came into somebody with phys- you know, physical contact with somebody was also became defiled or unclean, which means they had to undergo this, this ritualistic cleansing that they, that they had to go through before they could return to society. So he was essentially an untouchable, and he was out of place in the city. He shouldn't have been in the city limits. And although we're told, we're not told how the crowds reacted, we could probably figure out what their response would have been, Right? Jeering, mockery, fear, gasping, you know, running away. Luke blocks all that out. 
He blocks out all those distractions from his narrative here because he wants us to see one thing. He just wants to see the leper and Jesus Christ together. And what we see happening is the man bows himself before Jesus here. He goes as low as he can. In fact, it says his face touches the ground. You can't get any lower than that. And he says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And there's some indication by uh, in the original language that he could have been saying this over and over again, not just once, but Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. It's an incredible statement that he's making. He calls Jesus Lord, first of all, right? He's acknowledging Jesus' unique authority here. And he acknowledges his, his wretched condition before, before Jesus. And he's de- demonstrating also his faith and Jesus' ability to make him clean. And then it says at the very end of this, this little phrase, you can make me clean. He's submitting himself to the Lord's will. If it's your will, if you will, you can make me clean. He's turning himself to, to Jesus' will. And notice the similarities between what this man's doing and what we saw last week with Simon Peter in verse eight. Both bow themselves in humble submission to Jesus. They both addressed him as Lord and they acknowledged their shame. And these acts and words, we should, we should be clear here about this. The acts and words that they that they're both are saying would have been misdirected. They would have been wasted. They would have been foolish. They even would have been sinful unless Jesus was exactly who they said he was, that he was Lord. Humility, you see, is, is an evidence of a heart that has truly grasped the gospel. It acknowledges the reality of our condition, of our deplorable condition in sin, that we are sinners, that we're living in willful rebellion against God who created us, who created us to live in worship of him, in devotion to him, and to our shame, we pursue short-term thrills and that leave us empty and we construct these identities that we think will help us feel good about ourselves, give a sense of a purpose and meaning and, and even glorify ourselves. And the sin that we have within our hearts is what separates us. What we don't realize, it separates us from a joyful, life-giving relationship with God. Instead, the Bible teaches that we are enemies of God, that by default we're enemies of his. But the good news is that we can be freed from our our captivity to sin. We can escape the wrath and the judgment of God that we deserved and be granted forgiveness in Jesus Christ. And and like this leper, we all do come to him broken. But will we trust him? Will we trust Jesus to to rid us of our sin, to rid us of our shame? Do we recognize that he is fully capable? Not only is he fully capable, is he powerful to do that, but he's also compassionate to do it. Verse 13 says that. Jesus does something that would have been astounding would have been also something that would have disgusted the crowds it says he didn't recoil away from the man like everybody else was doing it says Jesus reached out his hand and he touched him it would be easy just to to read right past that without recognizing the significance of that statement 
Consider the magnitude of that significant act that Jesus was doing. The man had come to Jesus. He had come very close but had stopped short of actually making physical contact with him. His touch again was, after all, it was, it was unwelcomed, it was detestable. And it may have been years since he had felt the touch of another person. And Jesus says, it says, he was moved with compassion. He places his hand on the man's blistered shoulder and he says, I will be clean. <clears throat> Some of you may know that, I've talked about this before, that I, had a, I have a degree in writing from Houghton College, now Houghton University, so props, props there. Uh, I took all sorts of writing classes, um, took journalism, took, took essay writing, took uh, poetry. Um, that was what I liked mostly was the creative side of writing. And one of the techniques that the professors would typically just hammer on over and over again, I never seemed to quite get it right, but they hammered on over and over again was a technique that where they would just say, show, don't tell. I don't know if you've heard that before in writing. Show, don't tell. Essentially what it means is that the type of writing that's, that's the most effective, that's most en- engaging and gripping for the reader is when a character his thoughts or his or her thoughts or, or actions or motives or feelings are demonstrated by their actions rather than just you, tele, you know, telegraphing it with, with saying that a particular uh, thing is in their mind or in their motives. So rather than just telegraph that, for instance, a, a character is angry and say that he was angry, it's, it's, it's more engaging to say that he pounded his fist on the table, right? And you get the sense that he's angry. So Luke is employing that, that technique here. He doesn't directly say that Jesus is showing compassion. He doesn't say that, come out and use those, that word, but instead he shows it by describing what Jesus is doing. He's stretching out his hand, Jesus, and he's touching the man who had not felt the warmth of any physical human contact for a long period of time. And with this touch, Jesus, he's conveying his compassion, his care for this man. And with his word, it says he, clean, he actually cleanses him. It's, inst- it's instantaneous. It's complete healing. It's complete cleansing here. There's not a scar left on his body or a sore left anywhere on his body. And incredibly here, neither the leper's defilement is, is transferred to Jesus. It's, it's, it's not transferred to him like, like it would have been. And instead, for the first time in history, a person touches an unclean person, and that unclean person doesn't infect the clean the cleaned person. I know it sounds just sounds trivial, but listen to me for a second. It kind of reminds me of a Chuck Norris joke. Have you heard the Chuck Norris jokes? Right. Well, it reminds me of one where it says Chuck Norris when he falls in water, the wa- he doesn't become wet. The water becomes Chuck Norris. Right. <laughs> so, kind of reminds me what's, what's what's going on here when when the holy, morally clean Son of God touches the leper. He didn't, become in, he didn't become defiled in return. Instead, the man who was unclean becomes clean. Instead of being defiled, Jesus' holiness removes the man's leprosy and the shame associated with it. But that was not just true for the leper in his day. It's true for us today as well. Are you struggling with, with guilt this morning? Are you struggling with, with shame? Sin has a way of making us feel dirty, to feeling grimy and, and shameful and, and dirty. 
Maybe you feel that way either because of something that you've done yourself, the sin that you've you performed, or, or maybe it, it comes from the other way around. It, shame and guilt doesn't just come from what you do, it can, be done, it can be done to you. It can come as a result of what others have done to you. It's not just always an, uh, the indication of personal sin that you've committed, but sin that's been committed in, against you. And you may be tempted to believe the lie that you're somehow now ineligible for experiencing the compassion, the kindness, the cleansing power of Jesus because of how others have treated you. But the truth is that on the cross, Jesus paid for your sin and he removes the guilt and the shame of sin of others toward you as well. And praise God, nothing stands in the way of Jesus' cleansing power. Hear this, there's, there's, there's no variety of guilt or shame that Jesus cannot and does not cleanse. He cleanses indiscriminately, right? No one is beyond the healing touch of Jesus Christ. And he is more than just capable of cleansing you and washing you clean in his blood. He is willing to as well. And the question is, have you humbled yourself before him? Have you asked for him to cleanse you of your sin and your shame? Another aspect of Jesus' cleansing is that it brings new life. As we look to verse 14, Jesus calling this man into into community. Jesus completely changed the trajectory of this man's life when he healed him, when he cleansed him. The desperation and despair that he had is now replaced with hope, brokenness with healing, and loneliness now with company. In other words, Jesus' compassion and his grace extended beyond the man's physical cleansing. The very next thing he tells this man to do is to be quiet. Sounds kind of weird, right? Be quiet. Don't tell anybody about what I just did. And it's not because Jesus was afraid of the word getting out. It was going to get out anyway. There's, there's many people there that were viewing what was going on. That was ba- it was bound to, to make its way outside of the city and into the larger community. His, his popularity was already, had already grown to this point. But the reason that he told him to be quiet and to go was because he wanted the man to experience the joy of rejoining community without any delay. Jesus knew the law well, right? He knew that in it, it maintained very strict instructions for ceremonial cleansing that was necessary for this man to be reintroduced into society. And it, it, his healing, his cleansing began with Jesus, but now he must go to the priest. The priest could not offer the cleansing that he, that he had just experienced only Jesus could do that, but he would, the priest would affirm, they, they would confirm his healing had taken place. And what would follow after that was this week-long process of, this, of ceremony and cleansing that would go on, and Jesus didn't want the man to waste any time. He wanted him to go and prepare for this new life that he had given him with his cleansing. The priests were, like I said, were not able to cleanse anybody from leprosy, but they had this privilege of affirming it affirming God's miraculous work. 
like I said, it was a week-long process, eight, actually eight days, that included bathing and, and, and washing the clothing that he was wearing and shaving all of his, his hair, including his eyebrows, and he would, they would perform guilt offerings and burnt offerings and grain offerings. You can read all about it in, in Leviticus chapter 14, but just to give you an idea of what this process looked like, they had to take, this man had to come and bring two birds and a bird would be brought, these birds would be brought to the priest who would then sacrifice one of the birds and they would take the other bird, the live, the live bird and dip it in the blood of the, of the sacrificial bird, bird's blood and then set this bird free in a field and they would also take the remaining blood and sprinkle the blood on, on, this, on this man and on the final day the, these three lambs would be brought, sacrificial lambs that would be, would be, would be introduced and, and the offerings would be, um, would be made and the blood of the lambs would then put on the man's earlobe and then on his right thumb and then on his toe. And then after going through this, this intensive process and all these sacrifices, he was finally at the end declared cleansed and he would be welcomed back into community with all the rights and privileges that came with that, including returning to the temple for worship. Think about how that week must have been for that man. It must have been a, just a happy, filled with gratitude for God's miraculous work and, and, and the longing that he had is, is now coming to fruition. He could be reintroduced into society and, and into community. The man's friends and family members that who had, had considered him dead were now welcoming him back in and they, they, he could be embraced again. He was alive, he was once dead, but now he's alive again. And he was finally enjoyed the privilege of coming back and joining the land of the living. He had been dead for so long. And it didn't take long for the news to spread as we see in the last two verses here. Like I said, the man's healing was, would have been astounding to anybody of the day. And as Jesus' popularity grew. Luke indicates that it went even beyond the city limits. It went out into the countryside and we moved abroad and just like in the previous cities he visited, crowds began to come and they, can't, they wanted to hear his, his teachings. They wanted to, to see more of these signs and these, these, these wonders and these miracles and, and experience his healing. And one thing we can glean from this passage is that the incarnate God, Jesus himself, the God-man, intentionally limited himself to time and to space. As a God-man with two natures, one divine and, and, and one human, he was like us in many ways. He, he hungered, he had, had limited energy reserves, he needed to rest, to eat, he was tempted by Satan. And yet, as a sinless son of God, he remained obedient to the Father and didn't sin. He, he also never wandered from the Father or he never wavered in his mission and that's because he spent time with his father in prayer and communion with him. And I know this seems obvious. It says here that he would at times move away in, into desolate areas and that he would um, pray with the father. Seems obvious he would pray to Jesus, but in this statement may seem like it's pretty straightforward, but he prayed, right? He, he communed with the father and he didn't use some other method or means of communing with God 
than what we have at our disposal today as well, right? He spoke to God. He modeled prayer for us. And as we see, through, we're gonna see throughout our study of Luke as we, as we continue to move forward here that Jesus prayed often and regularly and even at key times in his ministry. Even on the cross, he prayed to the Father. In fact, you could say that Jesus' public ministry was fueled by prayer, both public prayer and, as we see here, in private. And if prayer was an essential element of Jesus' life and his ministry, isn't it all the more vital for us today as well? Jesus not only modeled prayer for us, but his sacrifice on the cross and his resurrection from the grave is is what it grants us access to God so that we can pray, that we can come before God the Father directly to God the Father, and he has done the reconciling work for us. No longer enemies, but now God's adopted children. So the question that we have is, do we schedule time in our day for prayer? I know that sounds funny to schedule another thing, but there's nothing wrong with impromptu prayers. In fact, it's encouraged. There are times where prayer just becomes just an act of second nature to us when we're in a situation where we need the immediate presence of God's ear so we can praise him, adore him, or, or ask for him his, his help, his intercession, his intercessory work. I often find myself doing that during, during myself during the day, even if it's as simple as, Lord, help me, or Lord, forgive me. I had to do that over and over again, even this week myself as, as I'm studying this passage but do we realize that, that the Lord bends his ear to hear us, that, that he delights in the prayers of his children? He loves to hear us. We're not a bother to him. In fact, we're precious to our heavenly Father. And the question is, do we light, delight in communicating with him? Do we delight in communing with him? Or do we use prayer to insist on getting what we want and what we need from God, forgetting that God himself is all that we need and all that we want. I got this, uh, this helpful um, quote this, this, um, this week from David Mathis's book called Habits of Grace where he talks about prayer. Um, let's see if I can get it up here real quick. I think it's worth, all right, well, you guys can have to do that for me in the back, but David Mathis says this, quote, This is the heart of prayer, not getting things from God, but getting God. Prayer is where we speak back to God in response to his word to us and experience what it means to enjoy him as an end in himself, not just a means to our petitions, end quote. Isn't that powerful? 2,000 years plus, we have this advantage of reading this passage and and, and, and what Jesus has accomplished in in this man that was... Again, astounding. It was, was like a resurrection for this man. We have the advantage of seeing it through the lens of the cross. We see new life and salvation that comes to us through Jesus goes deeper than the leprosy. When we, when we place our faith and trust in Christ, it goes that the corruption of sin that's in our hearts is something that Jesus can touch. It goes beyond our skin level. Before the redeeming of Christ, Scripture says that we were like lepers, that we were treated as 
and lepers were treated in the day like as the walking dead, essentially. But we are, because of Christ, physically alive. By Initially, we are physically alive, but, but we are spiritual corpses. What Christ does is he makes us spiritually alive just as we are physically alive. We were once hopelessly chained to our sinful desires and destined for an eternity, a well-earned punishment in the unquenchable fires of hell. But God himself it says, reached toward us, the untouchables, not to condemn us, but with compassion and with the intention to save us. He comes to us in Jesus Christ. Titus chapter three, verses four through seven sums this up really well. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not by works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, who he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. That's a mouthful, but that's the truth of what transpires when we come to faith in Christ. It's the, the story, this story in, in that text is a beautiful portrayal of the triune God's work in redeeming us sinners. God the Father sends Jesus Christ the Son to this filthy, sin-ridden world to live a life of perfect obedience to his law. And in the power of the Spirit, he walked this earth as well. And he died on the cross in our place. And the place that Jesus hung, bloodied and bruised between two wooden posts, is a spot that we should have been, that was reserved for us. But on the cross, Jesus willingly suffered under the weight of our sin, loaded on his shoulders, along with our humiliation and our shame, and he paid our penalty. And those who, like the leper this morning that we've read about, who humbly acknowledge their sin and trust in Jesus, are forgiven, and they're washed clean. And the Holy Spirit then breathes new life into our formerly dead soul, and he takes up residence within us. He seals us as God's own. Our sin then is exchanged for Christ's righteousness, what what Martin Luther called the great exchange. And by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, God declares you morally clean, or to use a theological term, you are justified, declared righteous. You are eternally secure in God's love because you have been purchased by Jesus' blood and adopted into his family, the community of faith, which is called the church. The church is the people of God. Sinners who have been saved by God's grace that exist globally from all nations and backgrounds and languages and throughout all time. Many have preceded us have come to Christ before us. And there are many among us today around the world who are devoting themselves to their Lord who has saved them. And there are, and we have the, we have the, the privilege of also going out and making disciples and, and, and growing uh, our faith within, within our church but also going out into the world and making disciples so we can serve together as the church and We can also be assured that God will continue to save sinners and he'll use us in that process but there'll become many that will come after us that will also be with us in glory. But what we all have in common is that we all belong to Christ who shed his blood for us 
And as his blood purchased children, we have the assurance then of eternal life. We, we, we will live with our Savior, with our Redeemer, with our Lord forever in the glories of heaven. As Tim Keller famously has said, the gospel, the gospel is this, that I am so flawed that Jesus had to die for me, yet I am so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. Now as the band comes up as we, we're going to prepare for communion this morning, I just want to ask all of us, have we humbled ourselves? Have you humbled yourself before Jesus Christ the same way that this leper did? Can you claim Jesus as your own, that he is your savior, that he is the Lord of your life? Sin is that, it's that great equalizer right, among us that we, we all come to Jesus wearing our sin and wearing our shame but God, our God is a compassionate God who is gracious, who is slow to anger, and who's abounding in steadfast love. So will you come before him? Will you turn to him as we all do? We all come to him, and it's through the cross. It's through the cross, through what Jesus has accomplished, that we are cleansed of our sin and our shame. For those of you who have encountered a saving work of Jesus Christ, what's more fitting, right, than to now to celebrate this morning together what he has accomplished for us at the Lord's table by receiving communion, right? In communion, we reflect and we re rehearse on Jesus' sacrifice, what he has, has done to make us clean. And for those who are, are followers of Jesus, then you're invited this morning to the table, not just those who are at King's Chapel, but if you're a believer in Christ, if you, are, if you have placed your faith and trust in him, then you are welcome, invited to the table this morning. And if you're not a Christian, if you have not trusted Christ, then we're glad you're here with us and we're gonna ask that you refrain this morning from taking communion, but we do want you to know Jesus. We want you to have an impersonal encounter with him and we would love to talk to you after the service, so we hope that you will stick around after service and talk with us. But what, just so you know, just logistically after we pray, the band's gonna, play, after I pray, the, the band's gonna play for a little while. Take some time to just, in your seat, to search your hearts, right? Any unconfessed sin, confess it before the Lord. And then, enjoy, let's celebrate by coming to the table and taking the elements and bring them back to your seat. Hold on to them, and then what we'll do is, after the band finishes playing, we'll take them together as a family, all right? Father, we just thank you for this time that we can spend together and that in your word we are just so thankful that you have not left us in our situation. Uh, it would have not been wrong for you to leave us where we were but out of your compassion, because of our sin, but out of your compassion, out of your love for us, out of your care, of your desire to save us, you have come and you have saved us by sending Jesus to do all the work that we could never do on our own. There's nothing that we have done to earn favor with you, but all we can do is surrender ourselves before the Lord and say, Lord, if you are willing, you can, you can set me free, you can cleanse me. And Lord, we know that that prayer is a prayer that you will respond to with your healing power. If only we turn to you and we trust and ask and repent of our sin. So as we move into community, Lord, just make it abundantly aware to us, again, the depths of our sin, but not to linger there. Instead, let us drive 
let it drive us to your compassion, to your grace, and in the joy um, of knowing you, we could receive that together this morning and partake of that as a family. We love you, and uh, we continue to worship you this morning, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.